The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Amen. Amen. Well, one more time, church. Good morning. Good morning. So as you know, uh, as you may be have heard, uh, we will begin our study through the book of Ephesians this morning. And so this morning will commence and will begin about a five month journey through the epistle to the Ephesians. And so by way of introduction this morning, uh, during college, there were a few times when I seriously considered switching majors out of civil engineering and into a business degree. And these moments often occurred when, while I took classes that focused heavily on engineering or math theory, such as structural analysis or ordinary differential equations. Trust me when I tell you there was nothing ordinary about that differential equations class. But while taking these classes, I would often ask myself, why does this really matter? How does learning all of this abstract theory really help me in engineering design? And while I can't point to something specific that I learned in those theoretical heavy classes that helped me design roadways today, what I can tell you is that being forced to learn all of that theory helped to shape the way that I now analytically think through engineering problems that I do encounter. The engineering theory that I learned it informs the way that I think about and process my engineering design today. Or, or maybe another way to put it, the abstract thinking helped to shape the practical doing. Well, well this morning, like I said, we will begin our ser- series through the book of Ephesians, one of the most masterful pieces of literature ever penned. Maybe, maybe rivaling, uh, maybe rivaling uh, the, the book of Romans, in my opinion. But the book of Ephesians is broken up into two main parts. In the first half, the Apostle Paul focuses on gospel doctrine. And then in the second half of his letter, the Apostle Paul focuses on gospel living. So we have gospel doctrine and then gospel living. And so my prayer is that through these next five months or so, that we as a church will grow more rooted in the gospel. In such a way that the gospel truths found in the book of Ephesians will begin to shape and to inform the way we live. Or to piggyback off of my engineering example, that our gospel thinking would shape our gospel doing. That it would give weight to every decision we make, both individually in our lives and the decisions we make as New Life Baptist Church. That would lead us to childlike wonder and amazement at our great and glorious and gracious God. That we would be utterly humbled by the God who has elected us by his sovereign grace. Who has redeemed us from spiritual life by the death of Christ. And who has sealed us with the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That we would be amazed by the God who has united us to Christ and made us is made us his children and who has united us to one another and has made us his church that we would experience over this series, the breadth and the length 
and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And that we would continue to learn how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would speak the truth in love. And so adorn the gospel of grace by how we interact with others in our lives. That kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness would flow from hearts that have been radically transformed by the forgiveness of God. That our knowledge of God would lead us to be imitators of God in our purity, in our speech, in how we spend our time, in our marriage, in our singleness, in our parenting, and in our work. And that we would daily put on the full armor of God so that we would be protected by gospel truths against the attacks of the devil and so that, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, that we would boldly proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Finally, it's my prayer over these five months that God's peace, his love, and his grace would abide daily with us. Or as Paul would put it in closing this letter, that it would be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And if you didn't pick up on it yet, I just did an overview of the themes in the book of Ephesians. But church, I share that with you as your pastor to let you know this is how I will be praying for you all these next five months. I don't say this to be dramatic or verbose, but if you join me in these same prayers, if you join me in praying through these themes of Ephesians and in seeking the face of God together as we study this book, then listen to me, church. I think these next five months have the potential to set the trajectory for our church for the next five years and even beyond that. Not because not I'm a great preacher or anything, but because the gospel has the power to radically transform our lives and to empower us as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ in our neighborhood and among the nations. My prayer is that the gospel would be planted within our hearts in such a way that its truths become deeply rooted within us and that its fruit becomes visible through our lives. That our gospel roots would bring forth gospel fruit. What I have laid out just now, right? It's an impossible task. You can't do it and I can't do it. Isn't that encouraging this morning? Jesus would put it this way. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so we say, along with the Apostle Paul, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think. To him be glory in the church. To him be glory in New Life Baptist Church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, with that introduction, let's read our text this morning. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2. And after our reading this morning, we'll spend the rest of our time focusing on the author, the audience, and the address of the letter. That's my outline. The the author, the audience, and the address. With that being said, let's read. Let's read. Verses 1 through 2 this morning. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we come now and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see the truth in your word. That you'd open our hearts to receive your truth. And that you'd open our hands to live in light of your truth this next week. Pray that your word, your gospel would so shape the way we think and that it would shape the way we do. So come now, we pray, Holy Spirit, and help us. Help me for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll notice that first word in verse 1. Paul, right? Uh, Up until about a couple hundred years ago, it was widely accepted that the Apostle Paul was the author of Ephesians. Not only did the early church fathers affirm Paul's authorship of Ephesians, they also accepted this book as Holy Scripture. We're not talking centuries after Paul wrote this. We're talking decades after Paul wrote this. Many of the early church fathers, some of whom were direct disciples of the apostles, names such as Polycarp, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Rome, and others. These early church fathers either directly quoted or alluded to various parts of Ephesians in their own writings. They regarded Ephesians be written by Paul and to be authoritative as holy scripture. Yet not not only did the early church fathers affirm the book of Ephesians and Pauline authorship throughout the centuries, Ephesians has also been held in the highest regard within the church. John Calvin even went so far to say that it was his favorite book in all the Bible. So, Uh, While modern scholarship today, and maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're unaware of this, but but it is happening. While modern scholarship today tries to pick holes in the authority and the authenticity and the authorship of Ephesians due to their own ulterior motives, they have reasons for doing so that are less than stellar. Even though they attempt to do that, it does us good to be reminded that throughout all of church history, Ephesians has been regarded as the very Word of God. But even more, if we are sensitive to his whisper, as we study this book, we will also hear the Holy Spirit continually affirm the authorship and the authority of this epistle as God's very word to us today. So if Paul was the author of this letter, and he was, it's helpful then to ask this question, right? Who was this Paul? And we're going to do it in, in three, three points. First, we see that Paul was a sinner saved by grace. Many of you are aware of Paul's conversion story. It's probably one of the most popular parts of the New Testament. Even non-Christians have heard this story. Prior to his salvation, Paul was a domestic terrorist persecuting Christians all throughout the Judean region. And even he even oversaw some of the martyrdoms of Christians of that day. He would be on top of today's most wanted list, and he would be the lowest on today's most likely to be saved list. You wouldn't want if you're a Christian, you wouldn't want to go around Paul, around Saul at that time. 
But, but as he was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus in order to find women and men who belonged to, quote unquote, the way. And he, he traveled from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest them, to bring them back to Jerusalem bound. When he was doing this, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and the risen Christ appeared to Paul, who was then named Saul. And Jesus said this to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in one of the most wonderful displays of God's saving power, Saul was radically transformed by the grace of God. Such such that just days after his conversion, Saul, who was previously a persecutor of the church, was now preaching in the synagogues the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying he is the son of God. Acts 9, which is which in Acts 9 recounts Paul's conversion. It says this in verse 21, that all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who were called who called upon this name? And has not he come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? It goes on to say that Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Listen, before any other title in his life, Paul was first and foremost a sinner saved by grace. And his experience of God's grace led him to remain forever in the grip of grace. Paul would put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So listen, before I continue, do you think that your sin is so great so as to keep you from God's saving grace? Listen, God's grace was powerful enough to save a persecutor of the church, and his grace is powerful enough to save you today. Christ Jesus came into this world to save who? To save sinners. So I encourage you. If that is you. If you think you are too far from God's grace. Too far from his reach. I encourage you to turn from your sin. To ask the Lord to save you. To trust in Jesus. And to receive his saving grace. His grace is powerful to save. Even the worst of sinners. Secondly. Not only was a Paul a, a sinner saved by grace, he was an apostle of Christ, our text says. Paul, Paul just didn't write this letter as, as one Christian trying to encourage another group of Christians. No, he wrote this letter with the very authority as an apostle of Christ. Now, now that word apostle, it means sent one. And in the New Testament, it's used as an official title of the men God uniquely chose to form the first church and to lay its doctrinal foundation. Because they were the recipients, the teachers, and the writers of God's final revelation given to us. What we know now as the New Testament. And so listen, church. I want to apply this to our lives today. Either we receive everything in this book as authoritative for our lives, or we don't. We either accept it all, or we discard it all. We can't pick and choose. There's no middle ground here. Either Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus, 
writing with the very authority of Christ, or he wasn't. And his writing of Ephesians is either the very word of God or it isn't. We can't take the doctrines and the truths that we are comfortable with and that we like and and leave the rest. Either we accept it all or we accept it none at all. Either we joyfully submit to all of its truth, knowing that all the doctrines, the promises, the prayers, and the commands contained in this book, they are written for our joy and for our good. Either we receive them or we disregard them, and we live then as the ultimate authorities for our own lives. This book is the very word of God, written by an apostle of Christ with the authority of the risen Christ. So the question is this morning, how will you respond to its truth? Will you delight in its doctrines? And some of them are difficult initially, but will you delight in its doctrines or will you dismiss them? Will you trust in its promises or will you trust in yourself? Will you obey its commands or will you live in opposition to God? The question isn't ultimately whether we believe something is true or not. What does James tell us? Even the demons believe. They believe and they tremble. They know more truth than you do. And so the question isn't whether you believe something is true, but how you respond to what is true. And so I want that question to be top of shelf for us throughout our study of Ephesians. And more generally, as we study the Bible, and that's this question. How will I respond to the truth of God's word? Paul wrote this letter to us as an apostle of Christ with the very authority of the risen Christ. And thirdly, Paul wrote it as an apostle by the will of God. Notice that phrase there with me in verse one, by the will of God. Well, as Americans, we love the story of self-made men and women, don't we? The, the, you, you, the stories of American history, right, are often littered with those romantic biographical accounts of those who went from rags to riches, from dust to glory. We love those stories. I, I pulled this, uh, this description of a self-made man or woman from, uh, from the Internet. It says this. The idea of a self-made man is inextricably tied up with that of the American dream. It is his image that has lured thousands of immigrants to our shores, all hoping for the chance to turn down to turn a handful of beans into a vast fortune. The self-made man is he who comes from unpromising circumstances, who is not born into privilege and wealth. And yet by his own efforts, and that's the key, by his own efforts, by pulling himself up by his bootstraps, he manages to become greatly successful in life. The story of the self-made man embodies the goal of every man to become the captain of his own destiny. And if you had to summarize the American dream in a, in, in a, in a paragraph, that would be it. That of the self-made man. And in fact, 70% of Forbes list of the top 400 richest people, it's comprised of self-made millionaires and billionaires. You can think of Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, all of these men and others headlining that list. They didn't inherit millions to fuel their success. They came from rags to riches, from dust to glory. But listen, 
Paul did not become a self-made apostle. In, in fact, the opposite is true. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes how he essentially worked harder than anyone else during Saturday synagogue school and how he rigorously adhered to the law to try and become a self-made Pharisee. To put it another way, before becoming a Christian, Paul's will was for him to become a self-made Pharisee. But after becoming a Christian, God's will for Paul was for him to become a grace-made apostle. Yes, Paul daily submitted to the will of God and faithfully followed his Lord in the face of much opposition, difficulty, suffering, and ultimately in the face of his own martyrdom. But at the bottom of it all, it was the grace of God and the will of God who made Paul the man and the apostle that he was. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Well, secondly, this morning we see not only the author of this letter, we also see the audience of this letter. Notice with me what Paul says next. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, now similar to what we did in the first uh, section, we're going to have three sub points to this one as well. So, so first, who did Paul write to? Who does it say? He wrote to the, the sinners. Is that what it says? No, it says Paul wrote to the saints. And listen, church, this is very significant. Paul doesn't say to the sinners who are in Ephesus. No, he says to the saints who are in Ephesus. You remember what I said earlier about the Apostle Paul, that first and foremost, he was a sinner saved by grace. Well, that's true. We are sinners. We are all sinners. But when sinners experience the grace of God, they go from sinner to saint. When God saves us, our entire identity changes. And that's the whole point of our justification that, that's a big word, meaning when God declares us righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done for us, because Jesus's righteousness now covers us. To, to put it another way, I am a sinner, but I have been made a saint. Listen, church, when God looks at you, he doesn't still see a sinner. He sees a saint because Seth, and insert your name here, but because Seth the sinner has been washed by the blood of Christ. And Seth the sinner has been perfectly clothed in the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Am I a sinner in my actions? Well, you can just ask Emily to answer that question. But am am I a saint in my identity? Just look to the cross to answer that question. And I think this is one of the most helpful summations of our Christian identity. And if you're here a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, you heard this. But I am what I am not. And I am becoming what I will be one day. I am what I am not. That's our justification. And I am becoming sanctification, what I will be one day our glorification when we are made perfect in God's sight. Praise be to God. The gospel has made us saints. This is who we are. 
And so may our lives then reflect this newfound identity we have in Christ. Or as Paul would say in this letter, may we live lives that are that is worthy of our calling. So so Paul writes to those who are saints, but also saints where? Where they, where did they live? In Ephesus. So to set the context a little bit, during Paul's day, the city of Ephesus, it was a bustling port city. It was, by, by all accounts, the fourth or the fifth largest city in the world at that time. So when you think of Ephesus, think of cities today like New York City, London, Paris, Tokyo, Istanbul, etc. It, it was an important political, educational, and commercial center. And it, it was also known for having the Temple of Artemis in its midst. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So very, uh, very prosperous and very pagan. The, the Ephesian church was li- most likely started by Priscilla and Aquila. And then Paul preached and ministered there for about three years during his uh, missionary journeys. And through Paul's ministry there, miraculous signs, wonders and healings took place. But even more significantly, miraculous conversions to Jesus took place. In Acts 19, it gives this account, but, but many people believed in the Lord and those who formerly practiced sorcery burned their books, which totaled in today's money around $5 million. They forfeited $5 million because of the, the radical change of God's grace in their life. And the gospel advanced through Paul's ministry in Ephesus such that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus. But but thirdly, look at me, that, that final phrase there. To all the saints in Ephesus who are what? Are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul wrote this doctrinally heavy book? And it is, and we're going to get into some of its meat here soon. But isn't it interesting? He wrote this book not to those people who had forgotten the gospel or, or to people who had swerved into the heirs of heresy. These, these Ephesians are not like the Galatians that Paul wrote to, to combat heretical teaching within their midst. And, and unlike many of Paul's other letters, Paul didn't write this letter to address certain and specific problems within the church. No, he wrote this letter to remind the faithful Ephesians of the truth, the beauty, and the power of the gospel. He wrote this letter to remind them of the primacy of gospel doctrine and gospel living in the Christian life. And this is key because, listen, we, from this we learn this principle, that the way we remain faithful in the Christian life is by continually remembering and applying the truths of the gospel to our lives. Listen, the gospel, it isn't the entry door into the Christian life. It's the entire house of Christianity. Or as J.D. Greer put it, if you're here in our Wednesday studies, he puts it this way. The gospel isn't the diving board into Christianity. It's the pool itself. And so the, great, the way we grow in the Christian life, it isn't by moving beyond the gospel into some deeper truths. It's by moving deeper into the gospel. The way we remain faithful in Christ Jesus is by remembering the great truth that we are now and we forever will exist in Christ. 
that we have been united to Christ by faith. Listen, church, that is an inexhaustible well for us to dig deep of our entire lives. Now, before we move on, I want to point out this one final observation. That remaining faithful to Christ doesn't come automatically. About 30 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, the Apostle John would write another letter, the book of Revelation. And in this book, John writes down the the words that Jesus says to the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2. And in this address, Jesus commends the Ephesian church for how they remained faithful to gospel truth and even how they endured patiently in gospel living. They were holding to the letter of the Ephesian law. But Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, that this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They kept the faith, but they abandoned the love. And so I, I just want to ask pastorally this morning, could that describe any of you this morning? You've kept the faith. You, you, you've held to gospel doctrine and you've been walking in gospel living. But you've abandoned the heart of the gospel. Namely, true, genuine love for Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, the natural trend is not that our love for Christ will grow. Natural trend. The natural trend is that our love for Christ will grow cold. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 12 and other places. It refers to this. And so I just want to encourage you, church, to continually warm your hearts by the fire of the gospel. And to continue to pray that together as a church, we may be strengthened in our inner hearts. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. May we be a church, as we prayed earlier, that is marked by love. Love for Christ. Because we have daily experienced the love of Christ for us. So we have the author, we have the audience, and then finally, we have the address. Look with me at the last phrase of this greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Although Paul, he uses this structure as a common greeting in many of his other epistles, and though Paul intentionally uses both a Greek greeting, which was grace, that was a common greeting in Greek culture. And he, and he also uses a Hebrew greeting, peace or shalom. So grace and peace, combining the two cultures together. Though he uses this greeting to address his Jewish and Gentile audience. I think if you had to summarize the book of Ephesians only in three words, you could do it with the words found in this greeting. Grace and peace. The fullness and the entirety of this letter is really an outworking of those three words, grace and peace. That when we truly understand the manifold grace of God lavished upon us, it will invariably lead us to living at peace with God, peace 
with others and peace within. Or to put it another way, grace-filled hearts lead to peace-filled lives. Grace-filled hearts lead to peace-filled lives. Well, the past few days or so, our, our minivan has been acting up. And, uh, and so yesterday, I finally bit the bullet. I humbled myself as a man, and I took it to the auto mechanic shop. And, and while the mechanic was looking up the parts needed to repair our van, we were making small talk, and, and, and soon this small talk shifted to a time of complaining for this man about another one of his customers. So I'm just listening as he is uh, maybe venting a little bit. And, and he shared how uh, this one customer got upset with him about something uh, regarding the repair of her vehicle, how she didn't feel it was done properly. And, and at the end of it all, he said this point. He said this, I guess she just hasn't found her inner peace yet. Now talk about the Lord setting that one up for me like an adult playing t-ball. And so after that, I said to him, I think that's the question we're all trying to find an answer to in life. How do we find inner peace? And so then I was able to share with him the gospel and how trusting in what Jesus has done by dying on the cross for our sins and how receiving the forgiveness he freely offers to us, how that can give us true and lasting inner peace. And I'll be seeing him again tomorrow. So church, be praying that the Lord would save him through our conversations tomorrow. But listen, maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe if you are honest, maybe you have been asking that question your entire life, even without knowing it. That no matter what you try or new habit you form or extra religion you add to your life, you still can't find inner peace. And if that describes you, I want you to hear the good news this morning. You can find true and lasting inner peace by receiving the sin forgiving, the new heart creating and the life restoring grace of God. You see, the reason you are not at peace with others in your life is because you are not at peace within. And the reason you are not at peace within is because you are not at peace with God. And the reason you are not at peace with God is because sin exists in your heart. We all have sinned against God and have rebelled against his rightful authority over our lives. And so as a result of that, our relationship with God has been severed. In fact, later on in this book, in in Ephesians chapter two, verse three, Paul would describe us this way, that we are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. We are sinners in hostile rebellion against a holy and all powerful God. And the Bible says the just and right punishment for our sins against this perfectly holy and beautiful God is death. Physical death, yes, but also eternal death in a place called hell. Now, you might be thinking right now, I thought you said uh, you had good news for me this morning. You're right that that what I just shared with you is not good news in the slightest. But listen to what Paul would write a few verses later. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that though we are sinners, though we are lacking inner peace, that Christ himself is now our peace. And in one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, in in chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, 
Paul said that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead, we're dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And so to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord means that he then becomes now our peace in life. He becomes our peace because he reconciles you to God. He forgives you of your sin. He fills you with the Holy Spirit. And when you are at peace with God, you will be at peace within. And when you are at peace within, you will live at peace with others in your life. Receiving God's grace restores your peace in life. So I just want to ask, if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus... Would you receive his salvation he freely offers you this morning? May today be the day of your salvation. Notice finally with me, and I'm ending with this, the source of this grace and peace. What does it say at the very end? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Referencing what I said earlier, Christianity, it's not a self-made religion. It is a grace-made religion. It's not a self-producing kind of righteous life, but a spirit-producing kind of righteous life. If you are right now living at peace with God, at peace within and at peace with others, it's not because you're a great guy or gal or because you have started some practicing some atomic habits. No, it's because of the grace of God that has intervened into your life. I shared this again at our Wednesday night evening Bible study, and I'm plugging it, plugging it, plugging it. If you don't have plans and if you're able to join, please join us. But I think this bears repeating. That if your growth in the Christian life, if it ultimately depends upon you, then who gets the glory? You do. Look what I have done and look how great I am. But if your growth in the Christian life ultimately depends on the grace of God at work within you, then who gets the glory? God does. Look at how great God is and look what he has done in my life. Listen, when we truly understand the grace of God, it leads us to a, par- a posture of heart that says, thank you, Lord, instead of look at me. Or as the psalmist would put it in Psalm 15, 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. In the Christian life, we have been given grace. And this grace leads to peace within our lives. And at the bottom of it all is God, who is the giver of all grace. This morning we have seen the author, the audience, and the address of this letter. And I hope this introductory sermon to our series has been helpful to kind of orient you in the direction we will be headed these next five months. And so with that, let, let's, let's end our time in prayer. And as we're bowing our heads, I, I just want, again, want to ask you. Can you confidently say 
that you are now at peace with God. If not, I encourage you this morning, you can be if you would receive the grace he freely offers to you. And maybe, maybe you are at peace with God. Maybe you have been justified, but you're not living at peace with other people in your life. And so I encourage you, if, if that's you this morning, I encourage you to repent, to repent of your sin and to return and to remember the grace of God that is freely offered to you. Grace always, a true understanding of grace always leads us to seeking to live at peace with others. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.